Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us, guys, at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreau. And I'm Tara Alexander. Tara, at the mic for The Gifted Life, Lopa's mental health expert. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. What about your background? Tell us a little bit. Well, I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I'm certified for telemental health and anxiety therapy. Oh, we love it. We love that you're here. We love that you said yes to being in the podcast studio, huh, Joe? That's right. (laughs) Here's a little bit of what's coming up on The Gifted Life today. We'll be talking to the woman behind the groundbreaking scientific breakthrough that could possibly end the organ transplant shortage. And we will be discussing compassionate boundaries. Ooh, I like that. Lots to get to here on The Gifted Life. Hang on to your hats. Here on The Gifted Life, we are continuing our conversation from episode 187 of The Gifted Life. On that episode, we learned about Jim Parson, someone who's changing the future when it comes to donation. We talked about transplanting pig kidneys into a brain-dead human recipient. Now we learn about the science behind this breakthrough. Joining us on this episode, we have Dr. Jamie Locke of the University of Alabama at Birmingham and Drew Schunk, Director of Clinical Services at the Legacy of Hope. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So so guys, I'm going to start out, uh, you know, from a, being a clinical guy like myself, I like to, to keep up on some of the articles in the journals. And uh, I guess I'll start out with you, Dr. Locke. So you guys sent, I would say, ripples through the transplant world, but more like tidal waves through the transplant world a few months ago uh, when we all got to read about this amazing uh, idea that was something that we had seen in the past, but uh, but it, it came back to to kind of to fruition here uh, in 2022. And that's, again, xeno uh, transplantation, specifically pig kidney transplantation. Actually, I, I watched an episode of Grey's Anatomy that followed you guys apparently right, yeah. on this. So what was it? So what, tell me your thoughts on, uh, on, you know, it's something that, that we had seen in, in the seventies and eighties kind of fell out of, of favor. And then all of a sudden you guys brought it back. So what, what got you into, into thinking about doing this again? Well, thank you for that question. I think, um, I think the field has sort of always been here in the background, working diligently behind the scenes to make this a reality. Um, and I think really recently in 2020, um, they awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry to two scientists, Dr. Charpentier and Doudna, for really the discovery and development of CRISPR-Cas. And CRISPR-Cas is this really elegant uh, tool that allows you to edit the genome and it allows you to do it with great precision and be able to do it very quickly. And it really has fundamentally revolutionized the field of genetic engineering and certainly xenotransplantation is a part of that because one of the goals is to be able to genetically modify the animal organ source in such a way that you humanize it enough 
uh, that the human recipient does not immediately reject the organ. And so it's really been the advent and incorporation of CRISPR-Cas into xenotransplantation that has really allowed um, for the genetic edits um, that have allowed us to move it to this point. And I think that's part of why you're seeing so much activity in the field right now. Yeah, so we had also heard, you know, roughly around the same time, in end of last year or so, uh, that there was a pig heart transplant that took place. So, uh, so we're like, you know, mind blown on 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 the trans donation and transplant side. So what? So as I can understand it, and for the lay people, so in general, a human uh, body will reject something that it sees foreign. And of course, uh, you know, a pig would obviously be fall into that category as, as foreign. So, so what this new tool is able to do is it's able to modify the the pig in this situation enough so that the the human body doesn't see it as foreign. Is that right? That's right. It's able to genetically modify the pig's genetic makeup enough that the human, not all humans, but most do not see the pig tissue as immediately foreign. So it avoids that hyperacute rejection. Now it's not a model of tolerance, meaning it's not designed to be completely compatible with the human, meaning it does require immunosuppression just like standard human to human transplantation does. So why a pig? That's a great question. So, um, well, pigs, as it turns out, um, they are able to reproduce relatively quickly. So they can have two to three pregnancies over the course of a year. They tend to have relatively large litter sizes, so about 12 piglets per litter. Um, they also, if you sort of think about them outside the context of the food chain, they actually have a long lifespan. They live about 30 years. And then really importantly and interestingly, the pig kidney functions very similar to the human kidney. So something that your audience may be very familiar with is something called the glomerular filtration rate, which is one of the ways we sort of decide how good a kidney functions. Um, in the setting of living kidney donation, for example, a potential living donor needs to have a GFR of typically 90 or greater to be considered a candidate. Um, the typical sort of adult human with two kidneys has a glomerular filtration rate of around 130 cc's per minute. And as it turns out, a pig's is about 120 to 175 cc's per minute, so very similar. Uh, and so that makes it a great potential um, source animal uh, to be able to provide enough organs for everyone who needs them. So I'm going to ask a, a silly question, possibly. So I know, of, of course, in the organ donation world, you know, in the OPO world, we have to type, um, you know, our the, the potential donors so that if you have, you know, for instance, a, your blood type A or your blood type O or AB or B. So so if we, we have to have that compatible compatibility aspect. Is there anything from a, a blood typing from the pig that you guys have to do as well, or is, is it just kind of one size fits all there? Great question. So the pig has been genetically modified to essentially be a universal uh, blood donor. So uh, blood type does not matter. Um, tissue type does, and that was one of the things we did in the study is we had to develop a flow cross match to test for tissue compatibility between the pig and the human recipient. 
Um, and so that we will have to test for just like you have to in human uh, to human transplantation. That's amazing. I, you know, I didn't even think when you when you mentioned the, the universal donor, of course, we know, you know, that's an old blood type for, you know, it's the same thing as, as blood uh, with with the organs. And, and uh, so it's, I didn't even think about that aspect. I was kind of thinking you guys would have to, you know, type and, and match it exactly like, you know, uh, genetically alter it to be an A or a B, but just to make it an O, that, that makes perfect sense. So let's go a little forward here. Um, so, you know, you guys understood that you've got this this tool that's out there that can make some genetic alterations, at least enough to get you to preclinical trials and, uh, and, and possibly transplant into a human. So then... I guess, where did your research take you? What were you looking at in, in subjects, for instance? So um, part of the reason I think um, this preclinical human model where we sort of leveraged brain death as an opportunity to test this was really critical for me personally as a transplant surgeon who has to talk to patients about their options and has to obtain informed consent. It was really important to me to have some an questions answered that I think were really critical to ensure that moving this into a living person would not be futile. And one of the things that we needed was actually a flow cross-match. So prior to our study, no such cross-match existed between a pig and a human. And so we needed to develop that and be able to predict ahead of time that this would be a good tissue match, just like we do in human to human. But the only way to validate that was to actually do the transplant. And so the opportunity to be able to do this in a human being, but without harming a living person was really important. And that's really where our colleagues uh, in the OPO world and specifically at the Legacy of Hope have been so instrumental in helping us develop and implement this model so we could really answer key safety questions that I felt as a practicing transplant surgeon and clinician were really important that we know and be able to have competence in prior to offering this to a living person. So I guess, so this is where Drew, uh, and thank you, Drew, for waiting patiently uh, with us. This is such fascinating stuff here. It's amazing. You know, of course, again, you and I kind of, kind of work on the same level and this, you know, same, same thing with the, with the clinicians. So what did you think, the first time you heard this from Dr. Locke and her group. Yeah, so I came on board with Legacy of Hope in the summer of 2021, and I moved down here from Washington, D.C., where I work with that OPO, and within the first week, I would say this is one of the uh, projects that I was read in on. Obviously, we still maintain confidentiality with the project before uh, releasing it to the public, and I felt that this project, this study, was really going to transform the way we look at organ donation. And one of the, the key things that's truly important is we still have a deficit between the number of transplants that occur in a year or each year and the number of recipients listed. And if there's any other way to supplement uh, getting these recipients transplanted, I feel like, you know, it's going to take something innovative. And uh, the Xeno transplantation is that innovation that truly will bridge that gap. Yeah, you talk about that gap. You know, we we know it very well in, in the industry. You know, there's over 100,000 patients who are waiting on a life-saving organ. Almost all of those, most of those, not almost all, but most are waiting for a life-saving kidney. And that doesn't include even the hundreds of thousands that are on dialysis 
who are not yet even eligible to be put on the waiting list. So, so the gap is is large, and of course, we are doing everything in, in that we can, you know, on our end. But you're right; there has to be some other innovative supplement to be able to to knock down that that gap, you know. And and I agree. I have to say, you you are uh, much more eloquent. And I would have said, "Are you serious, Doc? Wait, what are we doing?" So tell me about your conversations. Like, what did you think about to be able to select the proper patient for this research? Yeah, so internally, our clinical leadership team sat down to determine what is a way that we are going to be able to track potential patients for the xenotransplant study. And one of the ways we looked at it initially was we do get referrals from our donor service area hospitals uh, with patient referrals for organ donor potential. And if any of these uh, referrals are automatically ruled out due to metastatic cancer or multi-system organ failure where there's not a single organ that can uh, safely be transplanted into a recipient, it hit uh, our leadership radar as this is a potential patient for this study. While we didn't follow them for organ donation potential, we did follow them for xenotransplant potential. And with us, it was just communicating with the hospitals to get an update on these patients. You know, we are looking for those patients that were most likely going to herniate and progress to brain death. And uh, that had that potential to be a part of this transplant, the xenotransplant study. And as we got closer to patients, whether we were notified by the hospital that they were going to begin brain death testing, we would reach out to Dr. Locke uh, and her group and we'd review each patient. to make sure that there is suitability for the study. What was different about Mr. Parsons' case that you guys felt that Jim would be a great candidate for for the study? Well, I think, you know, um, number one, you know, he was very committed uh, during his life when he was living uh, to, to being an organ donor. He had also expressed his family an interest in making a difference and I think this just really resonated with the family, the ability for Jem to potentially do both, um, either be a kidney-only donor or be able and be able to participate in the research project or just be able to participate in the research project. So I think, again, like with many things in our field, and we talk a lot about this in the context of just organ donation in general, I think the fact that Mr. Parsons had these conversations with his family you know, that far preceded his death. I think it just made the whole conversation so much easier with them. Not that these are ever easy conversations, but I think it gave them comfort in their decision on behalf of Mr. Parsons that they were doing what he really wanted. Um, And I think that certainly helped us in this journey. Um, We have learned so much, not just from Mr. Parsons, but also from his family um, about what families in this scenario need um, how to comfort them, be there for them, and have them be a part of the process. Um, and I think it's really helped us further develop and refine this preclinical human model in a way that I think makes it sustainable, not just for testing something like xenotransplantation, but you can envision other things that perhaps we don't have a great preclinical animal model for, but we have these critical safety questions that we really need to answer before we do this in a living person, I think the Parsons model, this preclinical human model, really affords that opportunity. So I think you take that and then you pair it with, and I'm obviously biased, um, 
but I think we have a great relationship with our OPO. Our OPO does a wonderful job um, with our local hospitals and our donor families and have really wonderful rapport. And our family coordinators are really extraordinary people who I think um, just helped us a lot with these conversations. And so I really think it was all of those things that made Mr. Parsons the right sort of individual to enroll in this study. So of course, uh, Mr. Jim Parsons was selected as a candidate. And then uh, as we've discussed many times, you know, in, in the Gifted Life podcast, the donation process takes some time. You know, there are quite a bit of things on the, on the donor side uh, that have to take place so that, you know, that the organs are suitable and then from a cross-matching standpoint and infectious disease standpoint. So I'm curious. So, of course, you know, Drew mentioned that um, he mentioned two things. One and, uh, that stood out to me. One was was uh, someone who's got active cancer, so they wouldn't be able to to donate because of a risk of transmission of cancer to a recipient. The second, multi-system organ failure. And for you guys, the layman uh, out there, you know, it just means that that the organs had failed, had gone into failure, and, and unfortunately, because of that, would not be suitable for donation. And and so I'm assuming so Mr. Mr. Parsons fell into that category, right? Am I right? So Mr. Parsons uh, actually opened uh, the possibility for the xenotransplant to pair with organ donation. And it, it was something that we immediately didn't think of in the initial rollout when we were tracking potential patient referrals. But as Mr. Parsons' organ donation case um, elapsed, we found this opportunity that we uh, could work with uh, Dr. Locke and her team and procure kidneys for transplant similar to that of a living donor procurement and still allow for the xenotransplant study to occur. And in Mr. Parsons' case, this is what occurred, is Mr. Parsons, uh, his native kidneys were procured for the intent of organ donation. And when the kidneys uh, left the operating room, then the xenotransplant uh, study started at that point. So, Dr. Locke, so what, like, what kind of time frame did you guys have? Of course, you know, Mr. Parsons at this time was brain dead. And in general, you know, an, an organ donation a case uh, takes a couple days. It's a 48-hour, 72-hour process. So, uh what did you guys like? What what uh, made you guys decide on a certain time frame as far as how long this particular study would take? Yeah, I think um, to just you know kind of build off of what Drew just shared. You know, I think first and foremost, our commitment is to ensuring that we do not disrupt the allo transplant process. So um, between the time that Mr. Parsons was declared brain dead and then ultimately was referred. Um, to our OPO, um, you know, it was five days uh, that he was brain dead before we were ultimately able to procure his kidneys for the purpose of transplantation and then subsequently be able to perform the xenotransplant study. Um, and, you know, that was, I think, really reflects our efforts to exhaust all the lists and make sure that organs get placed. Um, but as a result, you know, Mr. Parsons by day five was, was, you know, experiencing all the things that brain dead individuals have. So he required quite a bit of medicine to support his blood pressure. He was in DIC. Um, and so I think 
you know, we really had to sort of run the study understanding that, you know, we probably weren't going to be able to keep him physiologically stable for very long. And so that turned out to be about three days. Um, we also have a commitment to the families. You know, I don't think it's fair to ask a family to allow us to keep their loved one, you know, for a long period of time, because certainly, you know, this does disrupt their bereavement process. And I think making sure they understand that um, and are okay with that, um, you know, as part of the informed consent around the study was really crucial. And so our study is not designed to extend past seven days from the moment the xenograft goes in. Um, we uh, will end the study in seven days just to not prolong uh, that bereavement process any longer for the families. So, you know, you've got the study, you decided seven days at, at the longest. Of course, instability, as you mentioned, occurs with, with many patients who are brain dead. What were you guys looking for uh, to say that this would be a successful study? I think we really had a couple of very early things that we were interested in. First and foremost, we wanted to be able to validate that cross-match because, as you know, in human-to-human allotransplant, you can't go to the OR without having a cross-match. Uh, uh, that's actually a federal requirement. And so being able to have that in the context of pig-to-human transplant was critically important. And the only way to validate what we had developed was to actually do a transplant. So that was probably the most important thing for us. Uh, and we were able to successfully do that. The second is, you know, UAB um, really invested heavily in xenotransplantation, and we actually started our xenotransplant program back in 2016, um, and we developed and implemented a pathogen-free facility where the um, donor source pigs are bred and raised, um, and it was very important for us to be able to recapitulate the entire operation from procurement of the pig kidneys at the pathogen-free facility where there is um, an operating room that is of the same grade as you would find in a human hospital, being able to flush those kidneys, package them, and transport them to the hospital for transplant, and really just be able to recapitulate every step of the process that would be necessary um, if you were moving this into living person. We also wanted to ensure that we had no disease transmission. You know, our pig was, again, from a pathogen-free facility, um, so we know exactly what the pigs have and don't have, and being able to confirm and demonstrate that no diseases were transmitted um, to Mr. Parsons was super important, um, and that really sort of, I think, confirms the robustness of the pathogen-free facility, um, which I think is really critical when you start to think about moving this into living persons. The third thing is we wanted to be able to demonstrate that at human systolic blood pressure, um, the pig vasculature could withstand that. You know, um, non-human primates have much lower systolic pressures, as do pigs, uh, than the typical adult human, particularly an adult human who has end-stage kidney failure secondary to hypertension. Um, and so we were able to demonstrate that as well and did not show any sort of bleeding complications uh, related to the vascular anastomosis. So that was really critical. And then I think finally, we also wanted to make sure, you know, these are genetically edited pig kidneys. Um, and we want to make sure that the genetic edits stay in that pig kidney and that sort of things don't move and go places they're not supposed to go. And so we were able to demonstrate that pig cells stayed in the pig kidney and that we didn't detect pig cells in Mr. Parsons' blood or other organs, and that's super important 
uh, when you think about trying to move this into living people. So those were really our critical key early safety elements that we wanted to be able to gain. I think realistically we, we knew and didn't expect this kidney to be able to provide a level of kidney function in the setting of you know, multiple blood pressure medicines, DIC. Those, those are not circumstances you would normally do a transplant. Um, so it was really important to us to have these other endpoints because in my mind, we needed those answers before I feel comfortable as a practicing surgeon and clinician offering this therapy to a living person. And that's what the Parsons model was, help us, was able to help us answer. And so we were really encouraged by that. So the OPO actually took part in that recovery as well? Or was that strictly the transplant team? In the recovery of the pig organ? Right. So that was the transplant team, although we followed the practices of our OPO and certainly as we look to do this on a larger scale and move this into the living. Um, and I've spoken to Drew about this. I mean, I would want our experts to be involved in helping us with that. They were certainly involved on the um, decedent side of things, um, but at the actual pathogen-free facility, that, that involved um, our, our transplant team. That's amazing. Uh, it's, it's, that all of the endpoints that you guys thought about here, I was thinking, you know, being the clinician, looking at certain markers for rejection or looking at the urine output or, and you guys pretty much thought of everything. Uh, well, thank you. That's awfully kind. I think there's, you know, there's certainly more that we have to learn, but I can honestly say, I think, you know, the data we have, you know, from my perspective, I, I think it is time to move this into living persons and in the context of a limited phase one clinical trial, that's what we're working towards now. Um, and uh, I think in parallel, we will continue to um, use this preclinical human model to continue to refine things like our immunosuppression regimen and other things. But we're really excited for the future. Um, I think this is going to be complementary to um, our current human to human allo transplant programs. Uh, you know, we think about half to two-thirds of humans will be compatible with these pigs, but there will be a third of individuals who are not. And so this is, you know, this is going to have to be a joint effort of continuing to optimize allo uh, transplantation or human-to-human -human transplantation while simultaneously looking to really uh, further develop Xeno as an alternative source of organs or an additional source of organs, I should say. So you're talking about concurrent studies, essentially, one that would, would continue with brain dead, and as, as I'm understanding, continue with brain dead donors so that you can continue learning more, but at the same time, start clinical uh, trials. Is that right? Yes, I think so. So what type of time frame are you expecting this, you know, to, to really get started with the, with the clinical human trials? We are quite hopeful that a limited phase one trial will begin later this year. That's amazing. I'm like mind blown listening to this. You mentioned that both kidneys were utilized for the research. So is it going to be necessary that two kidneys are utilized for a transplant to take place in the future? Or will a single kidney do like human to human transplants? Yeah, no, they, they won't need to be done in pairs. Um, we've, we've worked out the size of, you know, the pig that corresponds with a kidney that's roughly the same size as an adult kidney. Um, so I think we'll be able to do single use. In this case, we did both because it was a second opportunity to test the and validate the cross match, if you will, a second opportunity to demonstrate that there was no hyperacute rejection. 
Um, so that's why we did it in this case. But in general, the pig kidneys are large enough that they can be sewn in singly. So what percentage of the population would be compatible to receive this type of transplant? And then uh, my second question to that is, is, would this eliminate the need for human-to-human allotransplantation? Yeah, it's about 50% to two-thirds we think are going to have a negative cross-match. So that leaves us about a third or so of patients who are going to have a positive cross-match with the pig. And so that's why this is really, you know, an adjunct to allo. And we need to sort of, I think one of the things I want to make sure of, as exciting as this is, I don't want people to think somehow this is going to replace aloe. Um, it's going to simply add to it, and I want to make sure that doesn't get lost because we still need people uh, to be donors, both deceased donors and living donors. So we're always looking for ways to narrow the gap in healthcare disparities, especially in those in minority populations. Do you see this as another step toward narrowing that gap? I think you bring up a really good point, and certainly as we are looking at trying to do um, a phase one clinical trial. It's going to be really important, I think, to have broad representation in terms of um, patients' backgrounds. You know, there's a long history in this country of kind of a one-size-fits-all approach to research where, you, you know, many studies have come out. But when you look at the study population, it was primarily Caucasian or primarily male. Um, I think it's going to be really important that um, as we study xenotransplantation, that we include people from diverse backgrounds and we cross gender. I think that's going to be really important. The other encouraging thing is in preliminary data, um, patients with high PRAs often have negative cross matches with these pigs. So there does not seem to be cross reactivity between SLA and HLA, which is great news for some of our highly sensitized patients. And of course, you know, um, I think is super important, you know, something that doesn't get talked about as much, I think, as racial disparities is gender-based disparities. And there are gender disparities um, in access to kidney transplantation. And in fact, it affects and impacts ethnic minorities the most. Um, and that's because what is unique to the female sex is uh, pregnancy. Um, and that is a way in which people are sensitized um, and this is particularly true for ethnic minorities as they are more likely to have had more than one pregnancy. And with each pregnancy, uh, your likelihood of being sensitized increases. So I think this really has the opportunity to help us overcome both racial and gender disparities in access to transplantation. I just really enjoyed learning from you and learning more about Jim Parsons. Um, what else would you like people to know about this breakthrough? You know, from my perspective, and my, you know, certainly my surgical colleagues as well as my OPO colleagues, I think Drew would agree with this. You know, it's really important to us that this be known as the Parsons model. Um, I think what Mr. Parsons uh, was able to communicate to his family prior to his death and the ultimate decision that his family made on his behalf has really changed the field of medicine and science. And I think. The potential to help so many people and you know we just wouldn't be here without them and so I just think um, honoring them is the most important thing. We've had so many episodes of the gift of life that that are so interesting and this is definitely up there at the top of that list. It is a lot to take in especially if science isn't your background so I was trying to find 
just information that was out there. And I thought maybe it'd be too far over my head because I'm out in the community and we're doing education and those types of things. But UAB.edu did a really great job of not only honoring Jim Parsons and his legacy and the hope he's providing, but also explaining this complicated transplant and this process that everyone's working on. And I know uh, we spoke with Alan at Legacy of Hope on our last episode, and he said, you know, the family, when approached, had a lot of the same questions that folks out in the community had, like, will these kidneys fit? Um, Would they be a virus transmitted? And you guys kind of covered all of that and brought it down to a level where we could all understand. So uab.edu is where you can go to find more information to continue to follow uh, what these guys are doing. We can't thank you guys enough for joining us. Uh, Dr. Locke, Drew, um, certainly appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you to all the OPOs for all your efforts to help us help our patients. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And I, I would like to too, reiterate from an OPO point of view, I think that this experience truly showed that organ donation and research can coincide and create a synergistic solution to saving lives through the transplants. You know, when, when organ lists are exhausted, uh, there's not often much we can offer the family at that point, you know, but being able to offer this research opportunity, especially in the case of Mr. Parsons, it was able to honor his wish to be a donor and also give the family some hope um, out of such a terrible situation. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, we're taking a moment for mental health. We are, and with our new guest host, Tara Alexander. Hey. What do we we have on tap today? Oh, today, guys, we're going to be talking about setting compassionate boundaries. Okay. I could use some tips. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first, I want to remind everyone listening that it is okay. Give yourself permission to set compassionate boundaries. So, of course, you may be wondering, what do I mean by this? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Yes. Okay. I said, I think I know, but tell me. (laughs) Well, I am actually going to share something that I want to quote from one of my favorite authors and speakers, Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. She says that compassionate people ask for what they need. They say no when they need to. And when they say yes, they actually mean it. They're compassionate because their boundaries keep them out of resentment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you don't overextend your, your compassion. So it sounds like a right. great theory, but how do you do it effectively? Yes. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to talk about that. Compassionate boundary setting involves deciding what you will and will not accept for your personal well-being. And it's a skill that you can get better at over time. Mm-hmm. And just like any skill that you want to improve at, you continue to practice it. So there's actually two forms of compassionate boundary Mm -hmm. setting I'm going to touch on today. One is mental and one is physical. So let's start with how to step back mentally when you recognize you're being triggered. Mm -hmm. When you notice that you're constantly thinking about the situations that are upsetting you and you just become so swept away by those challenging emotions, Mm -hmm. stop and observe what you're experiencing. And assess how you can best take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm I'm thinking there's nothing I can do about that. So why am I like obsessing over like step back? You're right. <laughs> yes, yes. I think we all have a Something, part of that in yeah. us. That's why it's 
I wanted to emphasize a skill that you practice on daily. Mm-hmm. And it's just like when a taking baby steps and you think of a baby walking in in a den and walking from a couch to a coffee table mm-hmm. and they take two steps. What is your response to that? Yay. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're winning. Right. So then tomorrow they don't take any steps. Do you look at them and say, oh, you should be running by now. You should be mm-hmm. walking. Why aren't you doing better? No, you say, well, let's try again and do three steps. Exactly. But why don't we <laughs> do that for ourselves? ourselves. Right. Yeah. Yes. We are so hard on ourselves. Yeah. And so I have three suggestions on how to mentally step back. The first one is cognitive distraction. So when you notice your mood is being deeply affected by another person's suffering, it's okay to reduce its impact on you by using cognitive distraction techniques. Now don't get this confused by me saying, pretend like it didn't happen. Don't mm-hmm. think about mm-hmm. it. You're just distracting yourself for a moment yeah. to be able to compose yourself. Mm-hmm. As in like Joey's pause, mm-hmm. that sometimes we take a breath because yep. we need to give ourselves a minute. So She mentioned your pause. Yes. yes. You're famous. It is. <laughs> yes. It's I quote Joey's be, Pauls all the time because because people uh, talk to me on the phone uh, all you know and yeah. of course Tara and I used to talk all the time mm-hmm. and and then you know she knew that if there was nothing on the other end for a moment it wasn't because I hung up <laughs> it's because Lots I had to take decisions. a moment digest and then be able to respond more people should should do that should follow <laughs> that now look I appreciate Joey not adding how I would go Joey Joey did you hear me did you hear me and then I finally realized and it's a very useful tip so and notice that the cognitive distraction that I mentioned isn't about avoiding your emotions around the situation it's a way to allow your emotions to defuse naturally so they don't immediately spiral out of control right so daydream about something that makes you happy Talk to someone, listen to music, watch a funny TikTok. Yeah, but then you end up getting watching like 22 funny Yeah, I was going to say, I kind of get in that so one you too. set boundaries on that too. <laughs> yes, 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 you do. That was a very good point. And another tip I have is cognitive restructuring. Now, this means reframing your thoughts and situations in the most helpful way possible for you. So... Whenever something happens, thinking, okay, how how can I reframe this to where it's a positive for me or where I can see it as maybe not a setback, but just a challenge for me to grow? Mm-hmm. I always try to look at the different angles like, let me see, where, where am I going to travel today? Yep. <laughs> yes. Yep. I like that. Yeah. And also coping statements. Experiment with different coping statements that can help you feel better. For example, I've been in a situation like this before but I made it through it. I can mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like, I like that. Looking at it like it's a challenge, just it's another challenge presented. Life happens. I've been here. Yeah. I've done it before. I can do it again. That's right. I'm going to try to tell that to my kids too. Like things are going to happen that don't always go your way. How mm-hmm. are you going to be after that? How are you going to land on your feet? That's exactly. our goal. Um, it's not always easy. Nope. You know, even this many uh, years into life. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. It's not how many yeah, times yeah. we fall, it's how we get up. Yeah. Yep. That's right. So we talked about mentally. So now I have two tips to share with you about how to step back physically when you're stressing and you need to set those compassionate yeah. boundaries. One is ask for help. That's hard. Mm-hmm. It is hard. But, hey, what 
better way to practice your reframing skills right now and see it as, okay, it's a challenge. I'm not used to asking for help, but now I can. Mm-hmm. Be vulnerable. Yeah. I, my, my trouble with that is I always feel like now I'm adding extra burden onto Someone this Someone else, person. yeah. You know, so that's where I, I have to get myself to say that it's okay, yeah. you know, because I struggle with that. I know I'm like, all right, I know this person has this, this, and this going on too. Baby steps, baby steps. Right, baby steps. Take three steps. That's right. (laughs) Because, you know, whenever you do talk to that person, it may be in turn helping them Mm -hmm. as well. Or he picked me to help with that. Exactly. Important to ask, yeah. Exactly. And this is a big one. Saying no. (gasps) I have a hard time. Yes, (laughs) yes. And sometimes you may need to say no. And it's going to feel tough at first, but you have to take care of yourself. But even when I do that, I, like, I think about it like I probably could have done that or I could have fit it in here or how did mm-hmm. I make them feel because I said no, mm-hmm. even though it helped my life out a lot and de-stressed. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> it is. But, you know, there was a quote I saw one time and it said, give others the best of you, not what's left of yeah, you. Yeah. And if you aren't protecting your well-being by saying no, then you're stretching yourself thin and you're not being that person that you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you're mm-hmm. not being that authentic person. So. I have to call her after I say no next time. <laughs> Talk me through that one more time, one more time. <laughs> well, just remember that it is honoring your needs mm-hmm. and your well-being. All right. So, and of course, you can call me anytime. I like it. Okay, we will. Speed dial. <laughs> All right, great topic. Maybe you have a topic you'd like us to cover here on The Gifted Life. Simple email is all it takes. Info at thegiftedlife.org. In our question and answer segment, I noticed information about HIV and the ability to register as a donor. Is it true that I can register even if I'm HIV positive? Great question. It is a great question. And the, the, the quick answer is yes. Yes. Because uh, it, it uh, historically, uh, I think it was around 1988, it was you know when people didn't know enough about HIV, it was actually, it became illegal. There was a law that passed that made it illegal to transplant someone's organs. But uh, uh, President Obama reversed that law with the HOPE Act. And, uh, and it's since we've got so many people right now who are living with HIV mm-hmm. who need a life-saving organ. Because HIV is, is it's not, it's a comorbidity now. Mm-hmm. Like it's, not, it's, it's more along the lines of a, of a diabetes than it is before pretty much a we've death We've learned sentence. so much. We've come yeah, so far. we've come far. so far. Yeah. So, so now you have people that needed a life-saving organ, but if they can't get it because not enough people are registering, then they may pass away because of that. So we don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. So we are encouraging as many people as possible who are living with HIV to sign up and be a register. And not only, so, so the list initially was more focused on uh, patients with kidney disease and liver disease, but now we've actually transplanted our first heart wow. HIV wow. positive to HIV positive. And those, of course, they are HIV positive to HIV positive uh, recipients. So great. When I'm out in the community and we're having these conversations with high schoolers or, or college students, um, and I say, this is where we are today, but who knows what happens tomorrow? So many great things happening from this brain trust of folks who just want to better where we are. I love it. Oh, and I've even heard that you guys have done a podcast on this. But, 
Thank you, Tara. We, we like that. We actually did. We covered it. We had some uh, amazing people who just share their stories mm-hmm. um, about this. So episode 54 of the Gifted Life podcast and episode 113. So if you go to thegiftedlife.org, you can search at the top um, of what you're looking for, and that'll pull right up. But um, if you want to learn from the best, um, that's a great resource tool for you. All right. Great question, guys. Thanks. If you have a question, you can always give us a call. 504-648-3477. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Elizabeth Ann Gilmore. And we learn about Elizabeth from her family. Elizabeth Ann Gilmore was one of a kind. She had many loves in her life. Her loved ones were at the top of the list. Three children, six grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, siblings, nieces, nephews, cousins, and friends. A few other things that brought happiness to her life included classic country music, astronomy, hunting, fishing, the beach, owls, winking owl wine, and twisted tea. She was definitely loved by many and was unexpectedly taken from this earth way too soon. We had so many trips planned cooking lessons to perfect, and uncontrollable laughing moments that will never take place. In true and giving fashion, she planned and looked forward to giving even after she was gone. Soon after she gained her angel wings, her wish to help someone else was granted. Within a few short days, her generous spirit helped give sight to two individuals. She was a true example of putting others first. Mother, Mama, Mamma, Sugar, Granny, Sister, Aunt, and Friend. We love and miss you so much. We are so proud and thankful for the gifts you gave us and the gifts you gave after you left us. You will forever be our hero. And now we pause and say thank you to Elizabeth for the gift of life. All right, guys, episode 188 of The Gifted Life in the books. Thanks for listening, spending time with us. Remember, you can register as an organ, tissue, and eye donor anytime at registerme.org. What an amazing episode How wild is it to think of where we were just a few years ago and now who knows, like 600,000 people waiting on a life-saving kidney that aren't even on the list, many of these people, but to be able to get them off of dialysis, it's amazing. It's hope. Yep. I love it. Um, And we'll be learning more here on The Gifted Life. We'll invite them back on any advancements. Um, You know, we just love to learn more about it together. The best place to find us, guys, at our website, thegiftedlife.org. Tell your friends. Listen there and find links to listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating. It really helps others find our podcast. On social media, you can like our page on Facebook, The Gifted Life Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life 
pod. That's going to do it for episode 188. Our ask, guys, is that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. We're one big team. Until next time. This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele and Joey Boudreau. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. 